At OMG Commerce, we accelerate growth for some of the most loved brands in e-commerce, like Boom, Native, True Earth, Overtone, and dozens more. If your Google and YouTube ad performance isn't where it should be, if you're struggling with Performance Max, or if you're not scaling like you'd like on Amazon, then we have two ways to help. One, we have amazing resources that are free for the taking, like our top YouTube ads guide with lots of examples, our PMAX checklist, or our Amazon DSP roadmap, plus many more. Or hit us up for a free strategy session. So go on over to omgcommerce.com and click on Let's Talk to request that free strategy session, or click on Resources and Guides and pick the guide that's right for you. And now back to the show. Why do you build a brand in the first place? Well, it's it's so that people seek you out without having to prompt them with a conversion ad, you know, basically. Or when people are in market, they think of Chubby's and they come and they go to Nordstrom or they go to Dick's Sporting Goods or they go to Amazon or they go to Chubby's.com, but ideally unprompted. And that becomes a conscious or subconscious learned behavior. Like that, those are the dynamics that we're trying to create, not this Pavlovian idea product offer urgency ad in my feed and I click and I buy because it's 15% off and I had to get that because the discount expires in two hours. That's not what we're trying to build. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of the e-commerce evolution podcast. I'm your host, Brett Curry, CEO of OMG Commerce. And today we are talking about really just an iconic D2C story, an amazing success story, an amazing brand. Talk to one of the co-founders of Chubby's and we're going to talk about brand building and how to think about growth and how to think about brand. And I just can't wait to dive in. And so my guest today is Preston Rutherford. He is the co-founder of both Chubby's and Loop Returns. Uh, and so, man, Preston, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, how's it going? Awesome. Yeah, Brett, thank you. Great to great to meet you. Great to chat with you and really look forward to this conversation today. It's going to be good, man. And so I was telling you kind of before we hit record, well, well, two things. One, you and I met on LinkedIn. So I've been following your posts. I don't know if like some, some friends of mine commented or shared or whatever. And I'm like, dude, this guy's smart. He's, he's got some fresh takes on brand building and how to think about stuff like ROAS and, and who you are as a brand and growth and things like that. Um, and then I, I also met uh, Kyle, one of the other uh, co-founders of Chubby's about a year ago. We spoke at the same event in Los Angeles and what a, what a cool guy. And so when I saw you post, I'm like, dude, got to get you on the show. And we got to talk about this. So let's do this first, because I think a lot of people are interested. First of all, what is Chubby's for those that don't know? And then what's the origin story? Like, how did you and your co-founders start this brand? Totally. Chubby's is a lifestyle apparel brand. Basically, if you think about what you want to wear on the weekend, it's our job to provide that apparel and that lifestyle. And in terms of how we got it started... It was, gosh, it was over a decade ago now. We had been, we're friends from college. We had been working for the man for a while, four or five years, and just thought we would love- Working for the man. Nobody wants to do that. Exactly. Exactly. And we just weren't, weren't a fit for it. And at that time, Shopify was just becoming a thing, a platform that existed. And- we realized, oh my gosh, it used to be so much harder, more expensive and slower to just be able to sell something online. And some of these tailwinds were making it ridiculously easy. And we also thought there was a product 
gap in the market. For some reason or another, all of us really liked shorter shorts. Two of us played soccer, one of us played rugby, another one of us just spent a lot of time growing up in the Southeast where shorter shorts were more than normal. And you were the rugby guy, right? You I was the rugby? rugby guy, yeah. Nice, man. Like rugby from the time you were a kid. This is a sport that fascinates me. Like I, I think it's, you can make the case that there may not be a tougher athlete out there than the rugby player, but how did you pick up rugby? You know, a good friend of mine, freshman year in college, he played it in high school. He just asked me to go out for tryouts, and I really loved it. I grew up playing soccer myself. Wasn't good enough to play at Stanford like some of my co-founders, but I liked running around. I liked the team environment, and the culture just seemed awesome. Really fun thing to be a part of. And again, with rugby, as with Chubby's, fun and community were at the core, so it drew me to it. Yeah, no, wait a minute. So now now you just you started playing rugby with a guy who was on the the college rugby team or you just decided I'm going to go out for the college rugby team and you made it? A guy who was already on the team, you know, he knew what he was doing. I had no idea, but he knew that I like playing sports. I like running around. Maybe I'm fast. Who knows? And he asked me to come out and try out. And I was blessed enough that uh, got on the team. <laughs> that's That's insane. And was this at Stanford? Yep. Yep, it was a <laughs> So it's a club team, you know, it's not D1, it's not varsity, it's a club team, but sure, a lot of, but a lot of still, amazing it, athletes on the team. Yeah, yeah, like I've been around um, club lacrosse teams at the collegiate level. Uh, I mean, it's still collegiate sports, man. Like no, most people don't just decide, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll learn the sport as I go. I'll just, I'll learn at the college level and then I'll go. So anyway, that's super impressive. Hats off to you. Uh, your first experience was at the college level of rugby. Holy cow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was a little bit about where you know who we were, and at the time, if you remember back late 2011, the Abercrombie and Fitch vibe, different from today, but back then it was very you know guys with six packs standing at the door, spraying you with cologne, like the uns uns music playing, and you know if you weren't that vibe, you didn't even feel like you could walk in the place. You know, dude, I was so not that vibe ever in my life, and I, I resonate with that. I'm like, I can't even buy this stuff. Right? Yeah, exactly. And then just at the time, it was very much like serious and exclusionary, and there wasn't a lot of humor. And we just thought, well, let's let's just flip it on its head. Let's have some fun here. Let's let's create a vibe that is the vibe that we wish existed. That kind of like harkens back to the the retro days of shorter shorts, barbecues, fun, welcoming, humor, creativity, and let's just have a go. And so nights and weekends, while we were doing our normal jobs, we just started trying to make some product first made it for ourselves and then just started making it for our friends and then this was also at the time when the square card reader came out where you could actually transact with the credit card in person so we just put product in our backpacks and went out and would do the weekend thing at the park or at brunch or whatever and there'd be just a group of us wearing these bright tiny shorts and people would either love it or hate it And we loved that polarity existed. There wasn't apathy. It was either you love it and you want to be a part of it, or you're just like, this is clearly not for me. And I think these guys are idiots. But that's kind of what you need, you know, with a brand. That is what you need. And because the the worst thing is apathy. The worst thing is a meh, I don't really care, right? That polarity means that there's a group out there that they fall in love with it and they want to be associated with it. And so that's perfect. Exactly. It was clear what we were and clear what we weren't. And that was just authentic to us. You know, that was our story. That was who we were. And people would come up to us, the people who liked it. They said, where can I get this? And we said, well, oddly enough, we've got some in our backpacks. You want to try them on? And, And then people would just be buying them. And so in-person sales was huge for us because there was such a tight feedback loop, you know, now it's tougher because you just, 
you know, you've got this Meta and Google middleman in there, but it was awesome to just have that hands-on direct connection with folks at the beginning. Now, I know, I know the trend, and we're actually just, just talking about this with some of the guys that, that work here at OMG. We're talking about how, you know, shorter shorts are the thing. And a couple of guys that work for me are runners and they love the short shorts, you know. And I am more of a child of the 90s. Like I played basketball in high school in the late 90s. And like that was the era of the giant shorts. Oh. I have no idea why this was a thing, but like the Fab Five in Michigan. I mean, you look at it now and you're like, how did we move? Like, how did we do a crossover between? I was a post player, so I didn't do any crossover between the legs. But- <laughs> How do you do that with the long shorts? I don't know. But were you guys like very early on in the short, short trend? Do you feel like you kind of helped helped that trend or um, were you kind of riding the wave? Oh, my gosh. We were early, super early. We looked, we looked like idiots for the first number of years in terms <laughs> of what we were doing because the vibe was the longer, the cargo shorts with 20 pockets. Cargo shorts. <laughs> the, the tight, you know, Ed Hardy shirts. That was the vibe. So yeah, we were we were not riding tailwinds at that time. Now, I would hope that we were a part of creating these tailwinds and this change, but that wasn't that's something out of our control. You know, we were just focused on the inputs and what we felt was a missing piece of the market, but uh, you know, at the beginning it was just very um polarizing and very different. But we knew we were a customer and we knew there were there've got to be people like us out there. And it wasn't like a top-down sort of like, you know, men's fashion, Tam, and then men's bottoms. Because if you did that analysis, you wouldn't have started Chubby's. <laughs> <You know? laughs> because the Tam gets, total addressable market gets really small real fast. And, totally. you know, that's why a post I did was basically no MBA in the right mind would have started Chubby's because it's a tiny Tam. And people generally want to attack massive, massive Tams. But, you know, we didn't care. It was just, let's make a product for ourselves and let's make just see a product what for us and then see where it goes. Yeah, it, it's so great. And so I want to skip ahead to kind of the ending because I think a lot of people don't know this. And then we're going to get into to lessons learned. And I've got some some great topics, again, kind of inspired by your your writings. But you guys were acquired by this, what became the Solo Stove kind of platform, which IPO'd. And, and there's, a, there's you know, a lot to that. But what was that exit like? Did you, uh, and, and what was that process, were you involved in that process? Did you leave the company prior to that? Or what was that like? It, it, was, a, it was a whirlwind. I mean, first of all, a huge blessing that, that anything like that even happened. Um, and... You had to go from selling, uh, you know, in parks in, you know, around your, your college campus or whatever to company that, that had an IPO. Like, that's just wild. It's just crazy. It's, it's totally wild. It's, it's mind-boggling. And... It is, it is crazy to think about it in that way. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was wild and a crazy, crazy process. And yeah, you're exactly right. It was a, uh, a bit of a roll up. So it was the Solo Stove brand and then two other brands. And then, you know, very quickly after the acquisition went public, which was its own crazy whirlwind, so many learnings and things like that. But, but yes, so that was, gosh, about a decade after starting the business. So my takeaway is these things take time, you know, consumer brand building takes time. And our hope is that this is just the beginning, right? That this is a multi-generational thing, like, you know, a brand that transcends and that's, that's the hope. So we view it as sort of like the quote unquote, Jeff Bezos quote of day one. And it's amazing to see that the, the brand continues to grow. The resonance, the resonance continues to strengthen and 
you know, I was just in Dick's Sporting Goods last week looking for a golf club and I saw this massive Chubbies set up there. I almost started crying because it was just amazing to see that something like that could happen after, again, you know, just walking around San Francisco, selling one short at a time to people who would just walk <laughs> up to us. So, Were you tempted, like people walking through the aisles of Dick Sporting Goods, like, hey, 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 I'm one, I, I'm one of the founders of, of that? You no, know, my wife does that. I'm so, I'm so embarrassed to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> But my wife does that sometimes. Then I get really red and uh, blushing and, and uh, kind of look down. But uh, no, it's 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 such an amazing thing to just see, like all the UGC, for instance, you know, like thousands and thousands of things that have been created by just people living their life, having fun, kind of reflecting back at us what we hoped to put out into the world. And it's things like that that, gosh, just kind of floor you and fill you with humility. It It really just kind of shows you, gosh, you know, left a little bit of a positive mark on this world and what you know what a joy to be a part of that yep it's so cool and and yeah i think like most overnight success stories quote unquote this was about 10 years in the making and and lots of blood sweat and tears along the way uh, that eventually led to that that roll up and that that ipo which is which is amazing Let's dive into a few things. I want to kind of unpack several lessons you guys learned along the way. And uh, one of those is, you know, I, I think we learn a lot from failures or missteps. So what are some of your favorite lessons learned at Chubby's from what you guys got wrong? Jeez. So maybe to start, we made all of the mistakes in the book, I would say. So anything that I say or anything that I write about, if you read any of my stuff, is all coming from a perspective of starting with humility. And having made all the mistakes, not, I know this, this is right sort of thing. So just a couple of things that, that pop into my mind. One is around changing the view, having more, hum learning humility around channel expansion. So for the longest time, it was the trend of, I got to sell everything through my site. I'm going to own this customer, own this transaction, get this email address, and I'm just going to, it's mine. You get all the data, blah, blah, blah. You know, what we realized is like, A, e-com is a very small sliver of overall retail or commerce, right? Like what, 20%, maybe a little bit more. Growing fast, but still very small. Amazon owns half of that. So <laughs> we're fighting for 10% of this broad sort of pie, yet spending 100% of our dollars on that pie. So that, that to us started to make less sense over time. So, you know, I think one thing we got wrong was holding on to that digital D2C for way too long. Have a little bit of humility that, yeah, even if someone really loves your brand, they're busy. <laughs> and you want to be where they're buying and you don't want them to necessarily have to just type in chubbies.com, be where they are. So big thing there, you know, maybe start going multi-channel, exploring multi-channel earlier. Now it's hard to do that before you actually build an association in people's minds. So you've got to do those things, those basics, but be where the customer is. Yeah. And, and a couple of things to piggyback on that, because I 100% I agree with you. You know, people are, are strapped for time. It's not easy to just buy in one place. And I think a lot of people mistakenly believe that, hey, if I don't have someone's email address and phone number so that I can follow up with them or I don't have their address where I can mail to them or whatever, then they're not my customer. And while in an ideal world, yes, we'd want all of those data points, that's not necessarily true, right? We can all think about our favorite brands, whether that's Nike 
Nike or particular kind of jeans or my favorite hot sauce. I'm a hot sauce guy. Like I am, I am a customer of certain brands and I may buy those brands in a variety of places. Maybe it's on Amazon, maybe it's D2C, maybe it's through their app, but yeah, maybe it's just at a retail outlet. And so I think we get, we over romanticize having full control of the customer experience when it'd be a lot better if we just put our products where people are because another reason, a lot of people may find you in a retail store and then become your customer online. So it can work both ways. And I think we we forget that or are just a little bit too too short-sighted about that. Totally. And there's fear, right? I mean, on Amazon, is, is Amazon going to duplicate my product and put me out of business? Or will the same thing happen? In, if I- when it comes to brand, they can't do that, right? Like Amazon's not, I mean, okay, maybe they could at some point, but like you guys had this brand going for you, which I think that's the key. Like, you know, uh, and, and Amazon's not just going to recreate that brand overnight. 100%. But it's, it, we have these, these, now I can call them irrational fears, but at the time, very real. You know, you're trying to do the right thing long term. I, I get it. But that was a big lesson for us. And, you know, big growth drivers now, now that we're able to be in more of the places where our consumer already is. Another one is how to spend our marketing dollars, you know, to better drive the outcomes that we actually want. Uh, and so what do I mean by that? You know, for the longest time, it was very much, and this starts to get into the ROAS, short-term ROAS conversation, but it was very much, I feel like I'm doing a good job if my ROAS is a high number, you know, and not really thinking about what that means in terms of business fundamentals. And so starting to think a little bit longer term, my primary goal is not to buy short-term revenue pops. My primary goal in building a brand and building a business is to generate a machine that generates sustainable sequential increases in profit dollars over time. Yes. Which allows me to create jobs, which allows me to make more great product, invest in great product and, and build great content, create great content that brightens people's days. So let's create a machine that actually does that rather than give me whatever 8.3x ROAS that I can then screenshot and tweet. And so that was a big shift because, you know, we thought we were amazing media buyers. You know, we thought we had cracked the code. We would constantly look for these little pockets of arbitrage, short-term arbitrage, but we thought we were killing it. And then, but we weren't, you know, weren't really generating any profits at the end of the day. And so shifting a little bit to, okay, what? What are we trying to do? And then how do we think about getting there? And so a little bit about, you know, what is what does it mean to be strengthening a brand? What does it, why do you build a brand in the first place? Well, it's, it's so that people seek you out without having to prompt them with a conversion ad, you know, basically. Or when people are in market, they think of Chubby's and they come and they go to Nordstrom or they go to Dick's Sporting Goods or they go to Amazon or they go to Chubby's.com, but ideally unprompted. And that becomes a conscious or subconscious learned behavior like that. Those are the dynamics that we're trying to create, not this Pavlovian, I see a product offer urgency ad in my feed and I click and I buy because it's 15% off and I had to get that because the discount expires in two hours. Yeah, that's not what we're trying to build. Not that we shouldn't do any of that, of course, like there's, there's, a, there's a balance, but shifting the way that we thought about, okay, what am I buying when I spend a dollar? And getting a little bit more of an understanding of that was was huge. Was huge for us, right? Let's build these. Yeah, let's, I, I love this so much. Yeah, let's build these resilient bases of revenue, and then let's build a layer cake rather than just a pop. And then you have to do it again. And then because you're reaching an ever increasing uh, pool of people, the the LTV to CAC ratios just get funkier and funkier over time. And CPMs go up, CACs go up, and you kind of get in this upside down position where you, they're just 
insurmountable headwinds, or you're starting to sell multi-channel and the old playbook <laughs> didn't work for us. So you just have to make these shifts and I think start to think a little bit more long-term. Like how is my percentage of new customer revenue coming through owned and organic ch channels? How is that changing? Like, what am I doing there? Like fundamentals, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and I think what's, what's really interesting here is that, of course, we want all of our marketing dollars to be productive. Of course, we want everything to work in our favor. But on what time horizon? And, and what does that really mean? Uh, because we can all become ROAS obsessed, right? And if you think about it, like the only way that you truly maximize ROAS is by making mistakes, like by or doing things the wrong way. Like I'm going to, if I want to maximize ROAS, I'm just going to go for like search and branded search. But like, where does branded search come from? Like you got to, you got to generate that in the first place, right? Or I'm going to, if I only want to maximize, you know, ROAS today, then I'm going to stop organic content and I'm going to stop prospecting on Facebook and I'm going to stop prospecting on YouTube and I'm going to stop doing some of those things, but that, that kills your brand in very short order. And so I love that being able to, to spread out the time horizon and think, yes, I want this to be a maximum return, but over the long haul, right? Because I want to be able to charge a premium forever. And I want people to associate with my brand and, and share my brand and talk about and then seek me out and all those things. And you don't get that. You don't build that by just running discount ads and by just creating that, that discount death loop, you know? And so I'm so glad so glad you brought that up. But sometimes you have to learn that, right? Because we all get addicted. And even as you know, as an agency, and we run a lot of Google ads and YouTube ads and stuff, and and I, and I get it. Uh, we want to be able to show those those impressive ROAS numbers and put them on case studies on your website or brag about it on social media. But it's a pretty much a vanity metric, right? And it, and it really only tells like a sliver of the story, not the whole story. Vanity metric, yeah. I mean, I think for us, ROAS vanity metric. Revenue we found for us was a vanity metric, right? I mean... Optimizing your own revenue, you're missing a whole bunch of stuff. Start thinking about like contribution, contribution margin, things like that, letting that drive everything we do, at least on the demand driving side of the business, right? Was was also huge. So yeah, just learning about these vanity metrics was took time. You you get there, but then can yeah, can we start to spread that message a little bit more broadly so that people get there a little bit faster without having to, <laughs> you know, struggle through it for five, seven, nine years. Yeah. And one thing, you know, sometimes we kind of uh, push aside lessons from bigger brands because we think I'm not that big. I can't do that. Right. I'm not I'm not Apple. I'm not Nike. I'm not Procter & Gamble. But one of the, my favorite lessons I actually heard from Procter & Gamble, and we'd already thought about it this way, but but hearing it from them was like validation that one of the, the key success drivers they look for in ad campaigns, what they're doing is does this lead to branded search? Does this lead to branded search? If it does, then it's probably working. So if we're running a TV campaign, it's maybe hard to measure exactly, but is it driving branded search or these other campaigns driving branded search like that? That is a huge component of brand building and that that's kind of a, a shift in mindset that gets you to think long-term and that's where the big profits are is long-term. Uh, I do want to double click on something Walt, since you brought it up and we'll, we'll kind of talk about this for a minute. And then I want to I want to hear some lessons from some of the wins and some of the stuff you guys got right. But you mentioned contribution margin. So and, you, and we talked about vanity metrics. So what metrics did you start leaning into? And let's start with contribution margin and the, and the way you guys viewed contribution margin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, an example, maybe it's helpful to think about an example. So you could, as you know, get a, a really nice ROAS. But what's happening is you're you're selling shorts that are you know 15% off, and so you're still spending the same amount as you were when your shorts were were full price. It looks like ROAS is going up, or you're just driving a bunch of conversions, and ultimately the dollars that are flowing through your PL 
um, are dramatically reduced. And so then at the end of the month or at the end of the quarter, you look back and you're like, I thought I was killing it. And then you realize, wow, I, I generated no cash from this. So then we started to think, okay, gosh, what really matters here? And then how do we look at things on an apples to apples basis? Because then it allows you to compare to things like wholesale and things like that. And it, and it starts to incorporate things like the amount of dollars you're spending and the discounts that you're running. And so for us, just that change and then ideally trying to, and I know Bennett True Classic talks a lot about this, of daily contribution, right? It's one thing to get a number from finance at the end of the month once you've trued everything up, but that's far less actionable on a day-to-day because we're making these decisions on a daily basis, like budget allocation, channel tactic, creative decisions. We need this daily feedback loop. So yeah, very much like getting away from revenue because revenue can be tricky and as can, I mean, you can gain short-term contribution, but looking at like long-term sustainable sequential increases in contribution dollars that your business machine is generating for us was huge. I mean, it just totally shifted how we thought about things and how we, how we gold our team and things like that. And, and just for those, I think a lot of people listening are very familiar with contribution margin, but for those that aren't, can you define it really quickly? Sure. And I think people have differing definitions, but fundamentally it's just taking into account, you know, sales, less all of the things like your cost of sales which incorporates your marketing costs, which incorporates your product gross margins, but then also all of these other costs like diminishing returns maybe in terms of like where you are in your business. But once you become relatively sophisticated, you start to incorporate things like per skew returns, per skew CX tickets, and all of these other sort of associated costs getting down to incorporating like shipping, right? One little aside here, you know, we started doing one of the things you want to do, right, is drive basket size, drive your ALV. And we didn't have $200 shorts, but we could do bundles, right? And I think a lot of us have tried bundles. The thing about bundles is that you hit a shipping size threshold where you might go from, you know, an average of five bucks to ship a package to 10. And you didn't take that into account because you didn't know you hit that threshold. Maybe you scaled shipping costs linearly and you're like, wow, this is way off. So Having that sort of sophistication where you're incorporating both you know, shipping costs as well, especially as you, you run these different promos, becomes very important. So then you get this, this sort of like nut of costs associated with selling your goods. And you're, I mean, you're not incorporating fixed costs. This is all like your variable costs. So you get to effectively your variable profit. So it's not incorporating things like your rent, your headcount, things like that, but nearly everything else. So then it helps from the perspective of, okay, I'm the marketing team. I'm the demand driving side of the business. What can I truly control? I can't control the whole PL. I can control revenue, but that's not really driving the fundamentals of my business. I can control effectively down to, and obviously there are other teams that are taking into account product gross margin and CX ticket costs and things like that. But from the demand side driving, demand side of the business, what are we able to, to really affect here and help drive the business and get just closer to the bottom line effectively, right? It's just more of more of a, a, a tie to what the business is actually producing at the end of the day. It's so good. It's so good. And, and yeah, when you realize that ROAS is a vanity metric and, and revenue is a vanity metric and, and even like percentages, margin percentages can be a vanity metric, right? It's more about what is the contribution margin? How am I getting closer to the bottom line with each sale and, and getting those daily feedback loops so I can adjust marketing efforts and adjust merchandising to really get there. And so it's so smart. It's, it's great. I love it. Um, let's talk then about what did you get right? And, and you know, I think sometimes people confess, we're definitely this way in the, the building of, in 
our agency. Sometimes you get stuff right on accident. Like you did this and you're like, oh, holy cow, we were spot on here and that was an accident. Then sometimes you're very intentional about it and you end up being right. But what are some of the things you just got right early on? Man, I think a lot of this was wasn't accident or things we stumbled into, but uh, but we did try to be very thoughtful around the things that we that we did. So I think you know first and foremost, um, you know no ad spend can compensate for substandard product. So I mean it's got to start. You got to start there. Your product has to deliver, has to be unique, has to meet a need that's currently unmet, and that's that's relatively obvious. But with how easy it is to create a product and then just start running meta ads against it. And being able to sell some stuff, there's somewhat of an issue there, in my opinion. And obviously, you'll get feedback and you can iterate over time. But but fundamentally, that's why I'm such an advocate of in-person sales at the beginning. Because you see that look on people's face. You see if they'll just walk up to your thing and be like, eh. You know, you get so much feedback that don't. Yeah, you can, you can read the emotion. Yeah, and you can hear and you hear the language, and they're like, "There's so much rich feedback there." Yeah, I love that. It too. It doesn't show up in clicks or you know sessions. I mean, some of it does, but that's that's one of the things I think that that we really focused on, and I think it started because we made the product for us. We were the first customers. You know, um, the second I think is like the fundamental approach that we had to the relationship with our customers. So because we were making product for ourselves and our friends. This was sort of easy, but generally this, what we were seeing out there that we thought was fundamentally problematic was companies, this corporate entity communicating with faceless customers. And, and that was, that drove the communication, the communication style, the content that was put out. And we just kind of fundamentally decided to take the opposite approach. We are not a company first, we're just a group of people first. And and we're developing friendships with other people. And that's it. So then how does that govern what we do and how we behave and how we communicate? We're trying to build a relationship. So then when you when you internalize it and you think about, okay, how do I behave in in my friendships? What are the things that I do that drive deepening of friendships? Like what do my best relationships look like? You know, I'm 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 giving, I'm investing, I'm there, I'm dependable. I'm building trust. I'm honest. I'm transparent. You know, all these sorts of things. Whereas if you're a company talking to customers, you don't care about investing in the relationship. You don't care about giving 100x more than you ask for. Um, so you can just feel good just throwing an ad in someone's feed that's like, yeah, buy this right now. I don't care who you are. And not that we never put ads in front of people that were telling them about our product, but it was just fundamentally different approach. And it just guided everything that we did and it really kind of permeated the culture of the org so i think that was something that that really helped because it really helped in building a community you know people felt like they were in it with us they were building it with us and they felt like they knew us because they did you know they really did and that i think led to a, a level of you know closeness and loyalty that and trust that you just can't really manufacture if you're doing it another way yeah, it's the stuff you can't hack, right? You can't shortcut, you can't get there in sneaky ways, right? You just, it just takes time and you just got to do it the right way. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk a little bit now about content creation and, and we'll talk uh, ads and inorganic. We can talk about both, of course. I'm, I'm going to quote a, a post you made on, on LinkedIn recently because I thought this was great. Um, you said there, hey, there's three parts. There's a three-part playbook for in, infinite video success. Part one, rollerblades. Part two, nerf 
footballs and part three, my favorite mullets, right? And so this, this tied into like a specific piece of content you guys created, but it was so great. It was so fun. It was so funny. But my question is, you know, how do you create content that is on brand, but still impactful where people want to watch it and want to share it, want to comment on it? You guys did that so well. You do that so well at Chubby's. So what's your approach? Talk, talk, talk about your approach there. Yeah. I mean, appreciate it. Um, so yeah, obviously that was, that was me being somewhat facetious, but sure. for us, what we learned is, and it'll be different for everyone's brand, um, but, but it's, a, it's about an approach. So the only formula we really have is, if, is making sure we have a tight feedback loop where the learning can take place. And that's, that's all that matters. And I think that's the thing that's universally applicable. And so that's relatively obvious. So then what does that mean? It's, it's having that deep process in place. So like, what is the quantifiable goal you're trying to achieve? You mentioned one metric that is branded search, or you could even like take it a step further and talk about like engage sessions from branded search, right? Because yeah, there's a lot of like hits totally. and, and bounces, right? So, you know, what is getting to like two page views or collection view or, or whatever it might be, however you want to define that, but there's a quality there that, that we found matters. But what is that quantifiable? What are you, what are you driving for as it relates to brand video content? And it's not that it necessarily cannot have any kind of a CTA or anything like that, but for us, we found that it wasn't necessarily short-term revenue that was the way that we would measure the success of this stuff, but have that quantifiable metric and then use your gut to come up with two or three different ideas and then just start the learning process. And But you have to know what you're going for. And once you have that, you can start the beautiful process of looking at the data, coupling it with your intuition and doubling down on what's working, doing less of, of what's not working and, and just build that, build that machine. And it doesn't cost a lot of money. I mean, you probably saw some of our videos. They, you know, production value was effectively one of the things we found was that production value was inversely related to success of the video. So it was just very much like, let's make something that's authentic and that, that resonates. And that allowed us to have the fast feedback loop where you didn't have to pay up front, you know, 50K to just get one idea to explore. You, you had the ability to explore a lot of ideas very quickly uh, so that the feedback loop could happen. So I think that's, that was the key for us is just having a feedback loop. And you got to have that dependent variable that you're optimizing for. And it has to be very clear. Everyone has to know what it is. And then you got to have a, a method for, to the best you can, you know, connecting what you did to that, to that metric. And that's, that's it. <laughs> for us, it was rollerblades, nerf footballs, and mullets. For you, it's going to be something else. That is not going to be universally applicable. I mean, that maybe, not, maybe that maybe formula, mullets, who knows? Mullets could work anywhere, probably. So let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you, you were saying that, or maybe we talked about this before we hit record, but, but your brand statement, like what you focused on, what, what drove and inspired everything you did was chubbies equals weekend. Now, was that something that was just kind of baked in and part of who you were when you started? Or did you have that crystalline focus in the beginning? Or did that kind of evolve over time? Talk, talk about how you got to that Chubby's Equals Weekend. And then how did that impact everything you did? Sure. The way we thought about it was that the core is fixed. And then around the edges or the narrative evolves over time. And, and we didn't necessarily know that at the beginning. But the notion of weekend, the, the way we kind of summed it up was that Friday at 5 feeling was was there from from the beginning you know we graduated college in 2008 global recession very stressful it was hard to get a job the worst time the worst time possible to graduate uh, college yeah 
I mean, it was, it was, it was a time. And so there was all this stress, you know, around work and getting a job and holding on to your job and, and, you know, feeling nervous about whatever that whole thing. And so for us, it was just kind of like, man, that's, that's rough. And what can we do there? You know, how can we contribute on that front? And it's, gosh, it's that moment where, you know, you leave the cubicle, you, you, you change into your weekend where you relax it's Friday at five. That's the trigger. That's the switch. That's when things turn on. And we just wanted to capture that feeling. And that was the kickoff for the weekend. That was the time when you were making memories with your friends, when you felt in control of your time and where you just kind of felt free. And so it was that feeling of freedom that was associated with Friday at five with the weekend and all of these things that were the story that we wanted to tell. And then that just very nicely tied into a lot of the you know, charitable things or the cause things that we decided to associate with around mental health. And because this stuff matters, it's all, it's all a consistent story because ultimately that's what we were trying to is, is help us have a different approach to life and stress and our work and what, what's important. So yeah, that was, that was there from the beginning. And with that comes an irreverence, comes a humor, comes a levity, right? That we can not take the end of the day. Seriously. Yeah. It's, it's the weight that we add to, you know, our lives that in a lot of ways is, is, can be changed if we just, you know, bring a little bit of levity and take ourselves a little bit less seriously. And, and that's what we were trying to, to do the story we were trying to tell. And we knew it had to be a tight story because people are busy again, back to that note, like humility around the fact that you are not the only thing people are thinking about. You get a quarter second and then they're moving on. So like, are you going to tell the same story over and over? Are you just going to continue to build that mental availability, that mental association around one very simple thing? You're going to mon monopolize that niche in someone's mind. It's, it's, it's got to be tight, but it can't be boring. So it's finding that, that balance. That's like the infinite balance. Yeah, and I, th I think it's one of the fundamental marketing mistakes that so many people make is assuming people are paying attention to you or assuming that people are more interested in you than they really are. And in the beginning, they're not interested in you. And right? in the beginning, they're not thinking about you. Like you really got to work and you got to be both succinct and interesting and funny if that fits your brand and, and all of those things. Now, I saw some videos and I, and I think this was you guys, but it may have not been. The, the videos of like the guy on the, the Zoom call and he's he's got the, the green screen behind him. So it looks like he's in his office, but he's really on the golf course where he's riding his bike down a busy street. Like that, that was that you guys? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in 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 partnership with, I mean, one of the most awesome uh, TikTok creators. But yeah. <laughs> so where where did that idea come from? And can you talk a little bit about the success of that? Because because like one that I was just remembering and I watched the other day, which was so great, was you know, a guy's on a Zoom call, and he's got a headset on, he's like, yeah, 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 but he's actually like lining up a putt. He's on a on a green, and then he sinks the putt. And he's like, yeah, exactly. And everybody exactly. else, everybody else on the Zoom call is like, what are you excited about? But that really captures that you know that weekend vibe. Um, um, what was the, where did that come from? Was that you guys? Was that this TikTok creator? Was it a collaboration? Uh, I'd love to hear the story. I mean, we've been doing videos, you know, making fun of work from the beginning. You know, we would make videos where we would just get, you know, dummy laptops and do flipping the tables or throwing our laptops out the window. But again, it, it all kind of speaks to what is the video? What is the content that you want to see when you're, when you just got out of that like performance review and you're just feeling, you know, like, what am I doing? I just want to flip the table, throw my laptop out the window and just go fishing. And so that was a lot of the stuff that we 
it is such a blessing to be able to even spend time making content like this, right? I mean, we were the luckiest people in the world to be able to do this stuff. But yeah, just bringing fun and levity to work. I mean, we talked a ton about just like the, the shackles of the cubicle and all these sorts of things. And so like, what's the opposite of that? And how do you think about, gosh, you know, this is this is exactly what I want to be doing when I'm when I'm looking at this content. And again, that was that was one of the consistent themes that, that ran throughout. And it's just fun. It's just fun to think about because so many of us spend so much time sitting looking at a Zoom screen. And so then to be able to just sort of say, okay, what what is the most creative approach you could take there? Because it's just something we all resonate with and generally sucks. And so how do you turn it into something that that is like, oh, this is awesome. This is super fun. I wish I was doing this. We yeah, we've all been on a Zoom call where we desperately wished we were on the golf course or riding a bike or doing anything other than being on the Zoom call. Totally on brand and totally worked for you guys for sure. So uh, any any other just and I know there's a million I know we could talk for hours and hours I want to also talk about Loop which is kind of your your newer venture uh, in just a second but but any other lessons or takeaways some of your favorites from you know the building of Chubbies that you want to share with entrepreneurs that are listening man you know I I think one of the realizations that was really helpful for us was just an understanding that. 95% of your audience is not in the market for your product at that given moment. So then what, what does that mean? What are you going to do with that information? And that kind of blew our minds because we were just sort of thinking, man, as long as my CTA is good and I can tweak this language a little bit and I can run all of these variants and you know, it was kind of like missing the forest through the tree sort of thing or playing just fundamentally the wrong game. And you know, once we realized that stuff and we're able to start thinking a little bit longer term, like, hey, this is a marathon, not a sprint. We're trying to drive this machine that is this ever-increasing percentage of new customer revenue coming through owned and organic channels and just create this like layer cake of resilient-based revenue. Like, I think that's the mindset shift. And I'm not being prescriptive in terms of like what you actually do to do that, but just how can we think about our businesses like that? That might be the one thing I want to leave people with because when we were changing our mindset, and changing our approach to these sorts of things. And there were a set of tactics that worked for us as we kind of like waded through, stumbled through all this, most of the stuff that didn't work. But that really was was one of the big things that drove this unlock and, you know, not only growing top line, but but bottom line profit generation as well. And and having gone from, you know, a business that wasn't really doing that to to doing that, you know, that's all I want to kind of contribute to the ecosystem is how do you do more of that? And what are these fundamental approaches and mindset shifts that, that we think we learned are more aligned with better way to, to run our business? And, you know, just because it's not as popular or talked about on Twitter or whatever, uh, doesn't mean it's not right. And it, it's harder. It takes a longer period of time. You know, the feedback loop is, is less well measured in platform, but it's the stuff that you know lays these foundations that helps us build the business we're, we're all trying to build. So I think that's that's maybe the main thing uh, is just that mindset shift. And um, I'm exploring it myself because it was it's, it's something that needs to be you know saliently articulated so that people can understand it, internalize it, and then operationalize it in their business. So that's the fun of writing and, and having a conversation, Brett, with you is just figuring out how to talk about this stuff in a way that actually makes sense to people. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think we just, a lot of people are trying to solve the wrong problem, right? They're trying to solve a short-term revenue problem rather than obsessing over a long-term sustainable revenue, right? Or they're trying to optimize towards the wrong metrics, ROAS and revenue versus contribution margin, 
and and some of these more sustainable, healthy things and trying to drive sales instead of trying to build a brand and building long-term demand. And of course, we got we to meet cash flow needs for today and things like that. But shifting the mindset there, it's so good. And if you can successfully do it, You'll be happier. You'll have more fun in business. If you want that exit, you know, want an eventual, uh, an eventual IPO like you guys, uh, then that's really about the only way to do it. And so, uh, really enjoy that. That's awesome. Love it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Loop Returns. That's a newer venture. So, what's what's the idea behind that, and what is Loop Returns? Yeah, I mean, this was something that we built for ourselves while at Chubby's, oddly enough. And we had no idea. You're seeing a theme here, right? Building for ourselves first, which which is a brilliant way to start a business. Well, thanks. <laughs> it can, can really, I mean, the, what it has turned into is absolutely fantastic. Jonathan Poma and the team, you know, amazing in building this thing into a great, great company, growing very quickly and, and really helping the Shopify ecosystem, and then more broadly, non-Shopify ecosystems really provide much better customer experiences around this truly bottom of funnel, these, these experiences that used to be really bad. So, I mean, we had a habit of just building software tools, software experiences that solved our problems internally. I mean, if you remember, I don't remember exactly when it was, it's 2015, 2016, the returns and exchanges process was rough. I mean, you just think about the back and forth, it was so rough that that's why a lot of people didn't buy online and, and, and apparel being the most challenging, really good shot. This isn't going to fit, right? And that would just deter. It was so painful to deter people from purchasing. Totally. And emailing in, say, I want to do a return, email back, say, send me a photo. So I make, so I understand you didn't violate the return policy. They send the photo, then you check the policy, then you send back a manual PDF of a shipping label, you know, just so broken. And then the realization that so many returns could have been exchanges and just the, the material difference that that can have on your PL if you're converting a return into an exchange, it just sort of seemed obvious to us that there had to be a better solution. So we built it for ourselves. And then other brands came to us saying, we want this experience. <laughs> this is so much better than what we have. And we were just like, oh, I don't even know how to think about this. This was for us. Are we a software business? Are we not? So we, we stumbled into it. And it seemed like it was solving a need that wasn't unaddressed elsewhere, which is kind of like what happened with Chubby's just in a different context. And, and so, yeah, I mean, put together, um, spun up a new entity, put a team in place, and they have gone and built an amazing business. It is awesome to see, so proud of the team. And I think a lot of customers are having much better experiences with a ton of brands, thousands of brands because of this. And, and that's you know humbling and awe-inspiring to, to be a part of in some small way. So making returns less painful for both shopper and merchant, uh, such a needed, needed thing. Where can people learn more about Loop Returns? LoopReturns.com. Easy enough, man. So we'll link to that in the show notes as well. And I do want to underscore, if you've enjoyed this podcast, which I'm confident you have, you need to follow Preston on the socials. That's how he and I connected. I was reading his stuff on LinkedIn. You know, the, the post about ROAS just got me teary-eyed and I, I was crying <laughs> tears of joy as a marketer. Uh, but your content is really, really good, man. So where all can people follow you? I know I saw you on LinkedIn, but, but where else uh, are you posting regularly, if anywhere else? LinkedIn's the place, man. That's where I'm trying to trying to do it and spend time and invest and try to get better at it. So just search Preston Rutherford on LinkedIn. There's a little shorts emoji in between Preston and Rutherford. So you know that I'm the, that this is the one you're going to select and follow. But yeah, LinkedIn would be awesome to 
interact with you, comment on my stuff, give me feedback. I mean, this is a learning process. I'm not here to just like dictate stuff. It's searching for truth and trying to learn together. So uh, would love the follow, would love the comments. I mean, let's learn together. And your, your teaching style, the, the style of your posts, uh, the, the style of your education is very, very chubby-esque, right? It, it, it fits the, the mode and the ethos of, of chubbies, which is, which is fantastic. I really like to hear that where you said, like, you're focused on LinkedIn. That's what I'm doing as well, because I kind of, for a little while, I was like, I'm going to try posting on Twitter, and I'm going to on Instagram and all these things, and tw- TikTok, which I, I'm like, I'm never on TikTok as a, as a user, but I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I like LinkedIn. That's where I'm going to connect with other brand owners and stuff, so I'm just going to go kind of all in, quote quote on that and then i may add stuff later but but i think i think there's a lot of wisdom in that preston this has been an absolute joy an absolute blast we'll have to do it again sometime thank you so much would love it brett thank you so grateful to do this with you it was really fun super fun conversation and yeah i'd love to do this again sometime awesome keep up the good work on that content and i will keep reading and sharing and i know other people will as well appreciate it man thank you and as always thank you for tuning into the show and we'd love to hear from you what would you like to hear more of on the show if you like this episode share it with somebody that you know will enjoy it and if anyone is thinking about being an entrepreneur or they run a d2c brand or they're a marketer they're gonna love this show preston rutherford so please share that and uh until next time thank you At OMG Commerce, we accelerate growth for some of the most loved brands in e-commerce, like Boom, Native, True Earth, Overtone, and dozens more. If your Google and YouTube ad performance isn't where it should be, if you're struggling with Performance Max, or if you're not scaling like you'd like on Amazon, then we have two ways to help. One, we have amazing resources that are free for the taking, like our top YouTube ads guide with lots of examples, our PMAX checklist, or our Amazon DSP roadmap, plus many more. Or hit us up for a free strategy session. So go on over to omgcommerce.com and click on Let's Talk to request that free strategy session, or click on Resources and Guides and pick the guide that's right for you. And now back to the show.